0: Welcome to the Defense Center Space Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As Russia's war against Ukraine entered its sixth week, President Biden submitted his administration's 2023 budget request to Congress, including a record $773 billion for defense that constitutes a 10% increase while research and development Nuclear deterrence, space warning, and missile defense programs were increased. The budget under accounted for inflation, prompting cuts to air, land, and sea programs, including proposing to retire some 150 Air Force aircraft, including 33 F-22 fighters and 24 warships that are proving particularly uh, controversial up on the Hill. With peace talks seen as little more than stalling tactics, Vladimir Putin is calling up reserves as he continues his war against Ukraine, as experts conclude his goal is to simply depopulate large chunks of the country to repopulate them with ethnic Russians. Biden gave a powerful address last weekend in Warsaw, where he made the case for democracies to come together to fight authoritarians. Ukrainian forces have been successfully counterattacking Russian forces and even appear to have struck a fuel depot in the Russian city of Belgorod, which is a key transit, logistics, and artillery fire hub for the assault on Kharkiv. China has nearly fallen silent on the war as Iran nuclear talks continue and Israel hosted US and East diplomats. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top aerospace and defense lobbying firms, former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations, and our very own producer Chris Cervello, who is a retired U.S. Navy commander, public affairs officer, and co-founder of the ProVision Advisors PR firm. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo Di. Interest. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Huntington Ingalls Industries is sponsoring our coverage of the Navy League's Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C. next week. And Bell is sponsoring our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual meeting in Nashville. Check out our Cavas Ships podcast, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavas, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week. And tune into the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look, all things space. Everybody, thanks very much again for joining us. A very action-packed week. We're going to get to Russia, Ukraine, as well as uh, Iran, Israel, and the Middle East in a minute, but first, want to focus on the budget because it is that very special and magical time of the year uh, that that just brings so much joy into our hearts, uh, and particularly you, Michael, uh, as you are on the front lines of, of this, uh, slogging it out for your uh, clients um, in, in a way that helps the national good, right? In a way that helps the national good. Uh, start us off on how lawmakers are reacting to the budget request: what they like, what they didn't, and what's
1: likely to be the
0: outcome of their desires? Let's put it that way.
1: <laughs> uh, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, we're, we're hearing mostly from folks about what, what they don't like. Uh, so, you know, we, the the Republican leaders, in both the armed on armed services, both Mike Rogers and uh, Jim Inhofe both came out. Uh, Rogers said he found the budget to be wholly inadequate. Uh, Senator Inhofe said Congress will do their part to make the budget reflect the real world. Uh, Senator Shelby, who's the senior Republican on appropriations, uh, said that the budget woefully underfunds defense and that this budget will go uh, nowhere. You know, as you know, I mean, House and Senate Republicans have insisted that the defense budget needs to grow by 5 percent, including accounting for inflation and inflation. Right now, the number are using is about 8 percent. So, you know, you mentioned at the Pentagon budget, 773 billion, but when you factor in, uh, you know, energy programs and other defense-related activities, and among the other departments, it's 813 billion, and the numbers the Republicans are talking about now, uh, adding to meet those those targets would be upwards of 900 billion uh, for defense. I was talking to a senior Republican yesterday who's throwing out uh, some of those numbers to to us. Uh, But the criticism also comes from the Democrats as well. I mean, The chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, Jack Reed, agreed that the proposal is an outline and just a starting point. And the vice chair of the House Armed Services Committee, Congresswoman Elaine Luria from Virginia, uh, really put out a lengthy statement, and I'll just you know grab one or two lines from it. You know, she said that she delayed putting out a statement on the defense budget because it would have been mostly full of words you might expect from a sailor, as you know she has a navy background. But she said, right. "But here it goes. It sucks." <laughs> she said right. the navy owes a public apology to the American taxpayers for wasting tens of billions of dollars on ships they now say have no purpose, and she really went after the shipbuilding program, calling it anemic. Uh, that the, the program actually shrinks the Navy to 280 ships, while at the same time, they're calling to build a 500-ship Navy. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, the progressive Democrats came out swinging against the budget. Uh, the P- Congresswoman Pramila Jaipal, who chairs the progressive uh, caucus, uh, said she's deeply concerned uh, with defense spending uh, and that she argues that there are more efficient ways to spend money. Uh, some senior appropriators led by uh, Mark Pocan and Barbara Lee on the Democratic side sent a letter to President Biden uh, saying we know that some members of Congress will seek an increase in defense spending, uh, but respectively, respectively, we ask you to do everything in your power to resist such increases. But at the end of the day, uh, this, the Democrats know they got to pass the defense bill, and they can't pass it without Republican help. So this number is going up. It's just a question of how high up it's going to go.
0: And I think, Elaine Luria, by the way, I, I think the criticism is uh, is on the mark with all due respect to my friends in the administration who worked work very hard on this. And we're going to get to this in a minute. And I just want to point out to everybody that uh, uh, Dove wrote a great piece uh, that is appearing today. Uh, in the Hill, Biden's 2023 defense budget is disappointing and disturbing. Uh, and I would agree with uh, with those sentiments as we've been um, discussing them. Really quickly, before we get to the budget part of the conversation, uh, talk to us, talks uh, going on on Build Back Better uh, with Joe Manchin, uh, they proposed an, an energy measure that appears to be good for his family coal business. So so that's good. Uh, reconciliation, uh, COVID uh, supplemental, and the two
1: retirements that are happening and, and what that uh, means. Sure. And and this is very relevant to what's going on with the defense budget, because, you know, uh, Chairman Leahy, who chairs the Appropriations Committee in the Senate, uh, says that he really wants the appropriators to reach a deal soon on discretionary top lines. Uh, And Senator Coons, who, as you know, is very close with President Biden, says that, you know, the appropriators want to proceed very quickly with this year's appropriations process. Uh, But in order for them to reach top lines, um, they have, you know, the, the, the fact that BBB and reconciliation is still hanging out there, that's additional spending. And that's one of the things that slowed us down last year. Uh, and this is now creeping back up again, where you have um, a lot of Democrats, including two dozen Democratic senators, 70 plus House members, sent a letter to the president uh, earlier this week, pushing for a reconciliation bill uh, that lowers the cost of child care for families, expands access to pre-K, invests in early childhood workforce. Um, but we've also seen that Manchin uh, says, if he wants to do something, that's going to be zeroing on, in on uh, tax, tax rate hikes on corporations, climate change and lowering prescription drug costs while also you know paying down the deficit. So there's really very little, there's a huge gap between what Manchin wants to do and what other Democrats and Senate Democrats in the house want to do. And Manchin is never going to sign off on what is considered the care part of this package. Um, so, you know, Schumer continues to say this is a priority for him and Manchin says he's working on no particular timeline. And the more that hangs out there, the more difficult it will be to agree to top lines on, on discretionary spending. Um, at the same time, You know, the COVID supplemental we talked about, you know, the president initially wanted 22 and a half billion Uh, on a COVID supplemental, it got cut down to 15 billion. Now, they're talking about a $10 billion deal on it. And they're very close to a deal. Um, But one of the big sticking points is uh, money for global uh, coronavirus funding and boosting vaccines abroad. Uh, There was 5 billion in there initially, now they're down to zero. Now, as of last night, they agreed to 1 billion uh, for that. And the Democrats feel a real sense of urgency to be ready in case there's another wave that we have the medicines available that are needed. And the Republicans are on a completely different page. Uh, they come out and say they really don't feel that there's a sense of crisis here. And I think there's really some hard feelings that the last COVID relief package was passed strictly along party lines about a year ago in a reconciliation package. So that still remains to be stuck. But I still believe that they will come up with a deal, but probably half the size of what the president wants. And it will be offset by other spending cuts. About the resignations you mentioned earlier, and it's actually more than just resignations. There have been uh, several uh, deaths in the House Representative uh, Congressman Jim Representatives. Uh, from Minnesota, who's a Republican, passed away in February. Uh, Congressman Don Young, a Republican from Alaska, just passed away earlier this month. And now we have two resignations on the horizon. Uh, Congressman uh, Fortenberry has resigned from Congress as of yesterday because he was convicted on several felony counts for accepting knowingly accepting bad campaign contributions. And now Phil Monvela on the Armed Service House Armed Services Committee, who's a Democrat, has announced that he will not serve out his full term and that he will resign as well. The date of his resignation still remains to be seen, but he will need to be replaced on the Armed Services Committee. And Jeff Fortenberry, uh, the race is already on to replace his seat on on the Appropriations Committee. And that should be decided uh, probably at the end of April. Uh, Dov, uh, we're going to talk about trade measures
0: uh, a little bit later in in the program when we get to the uh, Russia-Ukraine part of the discussion and the uh, 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 Israel-Iran conversation. But, Dov, talk to us about what you liked, what you didn't like about this budget and why you found it so disturbing.
2: Well, I I didn't like very much about it. Um, And quite frankly, some folks that I spoke to in the Pentagon didn't like very much about it. Um, Where to start? Let's start with inflation. So my numbers that I just calculated based on the, the administration's numbers is they're assuming 2.6% inflation. That's it. Um, and there's, and of course, since they want a budget passed by September 30th, they're basically assuming that it's going to go down from 8% to 2.6% in six months. Give me a break. Then there's the issue of how that inflation is likely to come down. Yes, yeah, that'll do what it. Can. But fuel prices are staying up Uh, And then there's this business of unfilled jobs. You've got 10 million unfilled jobs, which means wages will keep on going up. So this whole notion of uh, 2.6% is is clearly just moonshine. And what it really means is a real decline in defense spending. Now, what's going on here? A decline in defense spending at a time when we have a serious Russian threat. And oh, by the way, the top of the national security priority, according to the document they've put out. That's a whole problem. Then there's other stuff that people tend not to focus on. We still have a bunch of health cancer-related, uh, uh, eye, eye disease-related, other kinds of programs that defense has been funding. Epilepsy. These are all things that should be funded, but I don't know why defense is funding them. And that comes out of the top line. Then there's $300 million to support Ukraine. Well, the administration tried that just recently when they asked for Uh, six and a half billion dollars or whatever it was initially uh, to be taken out of defense hide and Congress said no well why do they assume that Congress is going to say yes this time they won't so that's coming out of the top line and then you actually look at some of the specifics and I'll leave a lot of the discussion about the Navy to Chris but you know you're getting rid of 24 ships you say you're getting nine new ones but one of them isn't new at all it was fun it was initiated Uh, Three years ago uh, in the 2020 budget, that's the amphibious assault ship. So they're playing games with Congress that are not just simply is not going to sit well. Then you've got F-35 fighters. They're cutting back on those. Well, F-35s actually work, make more sense in the European theater than in the Pacific theater simply because of their legs. And so at a time when you're supposedly trying to deter Mr. Putin, you're cutting back on the fighters that would deter Mr. Putin. Uh, it, It makes me scratch my head. So bottom line on all of this, this is, uh, as, as Mike said, this is a budget that's dead on arrival. Um, they're going to add more money to it. Uh, yes, it's over $800 billion if you count the NNSA and the, secu- and the Energy Department and so on. But you're looking at the Defense Department budget. That's what really is the fundamental deterrent. Yes, you've got this other stuff. But you can't say, well, I'm spending $800 billion on defense, which a lot of people are saying. No. You're spending 773, that's simply not enough. It's going to go well over 800, I don't know how far. And that'll depend also on whether that inflation comes down and to just a, a final point on that, if the Fed is successful with its five or six or however many interest rate hikes it makes and it brings inflation down by 50%, to say about
0: 3.9% inflation This is still still a real decline in defense spending as the administration has proposed it. Dov, I would uh, unfortunately agree with that assessment, but I think that they're trying to, right, I mean, as we have said on the show, and I believe you were first to say it many weeks ago, this is gold watching, right? You're cutting the very things you know that Congress is going to help you out with uh, at at the at at the end of the day, and it's and I just want to. This is a nonpartisan statement. It's disingenuous, no matter what administration uh, does it uh, at at the. But one
2: other point, And, and I think, and let me pick up on something Mike said because it is important. What I think the administration is trying to do is to thread its democratic needle. Mike laid out why some Democrats think it's not enough, and other think Democrats think it's too much. So I think what they really tried to do here, at least what OMB tried to do, not necessarily the Defense Department, but OMB is highly political. Obviously, they tried to, to sort of basically split the difference between the Democratic moderates and Democratic progressives
0: and then leave it to Congress to make a- up. Uh, exactly. Um. Uh, Patrick, let me bring you uh, into the conversation, because a lot of the criticism about this budget is how it was perceived by uh, uh, particularly commanders uh, and commanders in the uh, Indo-Pacific. From your standpoint, how do you grade what the administration did? What were the positive elements of it? What were the negative elements of it? And where is it you think the administration uh, needs to end up? Because I think folks give the administration high marks for having an integrated response, connecting Russia to China. Uh, and also trying to do all of the right things to reassure reassure our allies and partners? How are they seeing this budget measure?
3: Well, Wagner, there are a lot of uh, good things going on in terms of strategy, in terms of working uh, with allies and partners, uh, with thinking about research and development and integrated deterrence. But uh, as uh, we've already said on this program, uh, you know, this budget's not going to stand. And I think it's probably short several tens of billions of dollars, Um, even though it's not money alone that's going to buy us greater security. We have to spend it wisely, but we still need more resources. And I think there are three problems with this budget. One of them is the disconnect that the president himself has created. Right. In his speech in Warsaw, he made such an eloquent case that democracy and autocracy were uh, locked uh, in a a bitter struggle um, in that if we allow Russia to redraw the map through force, this is a global problem. Uh, it requires defense. Secondly, the Democrats, in particular, have a problem of credibility when it comes to pivoting to the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we've seen this, you know, picture before in the Obama administration, uh, where we fo- we failed to follow through with the resources we needed to make that pivot credible. Once again, you hear these voices in the Indo-Pacific saying uh, we're being not only diverted by Ukraine, but the defense budget's actually declining in real terms. That's not going to happen. It can't happen. And the third point is. It's uh, against the the global trend. Uh, There's going to be a global trend. I've got a new essay out uh, today about the legacy of war. And, uh, you know, in addition to growing bipolarity in the world with U.S.-China rivalry at the head of it, there's going to be more arms racing. And there already is. And take a look at North Korea. Take a look at Iran's missile programs, as well as what Russia is doing with aggression in Europe actively and what China is trying to keep open its options to be able to do whether against Taiwan or elsewhere in the Indo-Pacific. So um, there is a disconnect, uh, there's a pivot you know, credibility problem and there's a trend of arms racing that all speak to the fact that the administration needs Congress's help to beef up this budget, to send a signal generally to revisionist powers that the United States means business, but also to send a credibility message to our allies and partners that we are going to invest with them in the kind of integrated deterrence and for defense that we'll need for decades to come.
0: Chris, uh, you and I have uh, been going back and forth in almost real time uh, on uh, the question of uh, certainly the Navy's contribution, uh, budget contribution. From your perspective, just talk broadly, but then more specifically about the Navy uh, piece of this because I think just about everybody in our circle and I think everybody on this program would agree at the absurdness of the Navy's position in particular Wanting to retire ships that are between two and um, you know nine years old, some of them. Everybody understands Olympia and Helena are at the end of their hull lives as attack submarines. So I mean that folks can understand. Like we want to retire those as we bring Virginia class boats on and upgrade some of the Los Angeles class submarines with new cores. Uh, those that have some hull life left in them. But but ultimately the littoral combat ship answer is well you know we need different capabilities. And oh by the way you know, their gearboxes don't work. Okay, well, you could fix the gearboxes and there are ways for you to use LCS, uh, for example. And then the amphibious ship thing was kind of bizarre also because folks are like, look, the light amphibious warship was supposed to be a complement, not a replacement for all these big deck amphibious ships either. So walk us through the logic of this and how it's going to be received next week at Navy League by the, by the Navy community.
4: Thanks, Fago. I'll uh, second pretty much everything that's been said Before And I'll foot stomp on what Mackenzie Eglin told you when she and Todd Harrison appeared on Tuesday to give you the rundown of the budget where she, you know, she warned to be careful not to get too excited about the top line increases because there were numerous gaps in capability as you dug deeper and deeper into the budget even if the administration didn't provide all the amplifying data. So, um, you know, kudos to them in terms of raising it 10%, as you mentioned. Um, But they kind of left it on Congress to fill in those capability gaps as you look to the situation in Europe and as you look out to the Pacific. Now, let's shift to the Navy. I think in a large measure, the Navy is um, probably the most emblematic of the gaps and question marks um, that folks felt when they looked at this budget. Um, getting rid of you know two dozen or so ships, um, only bringing in um, nine or so, uh, dropping the fleet to 280 while at the same time you're calling for a, at the low level 355, at the high level 500, not really having a strategy that the budget seems to neatly fit um, or is tied to it leaves a lot of naval thinkers kind of scratching their head, especially as the Truman is being extended in the Mediterranean. There are backlogs still with maintenance. So there are a lot of issues that the Navy is dealing with today, and I don't really see where this budget goes after a lot of those issues. Now let's flip the coin. There are a lot of people that praised the CNO for cutting bait finally on LCS. His last four predecessors kind of kicked the can. They dealt with it, but they never really forced the Navy to embrace LCS. And so some would argue that it was a suck on the surface community. It was a suck on the top line. And so Gilday is getting credit for finally getting rid of LCS, for finally getting rid of a number of cruisers that a lot of people saw as a maintenance suck, despite um their capability and the the number of missile tubes that they provided uh the the fleet and whether you call it divest to invest or whether you call it you know cutting dead weight um there are people that are praising gilday now let's shift to air space that's happening next week at national harbor I think the focus will break really on two sides of that coin. There'll be a lot of folks that bemoan the fact that there are tons of capabilities gaps that go um, unaddressed in this budget. And there'll be some that see Gilday and see his team as, um, as finally putting a lot of these ghosts behind us so that we can truly focus on um, what Admiral Davidson and what Admiral Aquilino um, talk about you know with China as being a, a increasing potential for conflict over the next five years, or in dealing with what we're you know seeing on the newspaper the front of the newspapers today with, with Russia. So it'll be budget, budget, budget as we uh, as we go to see our space, kind of as it always is, and uh, we'll, we'll see how things turn out.
3: An interesting poll actually out of William and Mary uh, College. Uh, And while it only polled and surveyed international relations experts, and that's real questionable whether they're decision makers or influential even, um, nonetheless, it was instructive because they've done this series of questions over the last three years, including um, uh, a month before the invasion and then a month after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And they asked a specific question this time about whether they thought the Russian invasion a month in made China more likely or less likely to use force against Taiwan. Uh, and it was instructive that the answer was nearly half said um, no change, Um, but one in three thought actually it would make China uh, more reluctant, less likely to attack um, Taiwan, and only one in five thought it'd make it more likely they'd be emboldened by it. Now, I know you can take that with a grain of salt, doesn't mean that much, but the point is that um, uh, we are preparing for contingencies like an attack on Taiwan But one of the things about Beijing is that they are not necessarily going to attack Taiwan the way that Russia attacked Ukraine. That is, you don't have to invade a country and occupy it to uh, seize it. Uh, And I think there we have to think more strategically and not just in terms of uh, the tactics that are used.
2: Uh, I want to mention one thing uh, that relates to what Patrick just said. So uh, one of the things I noted in my piece today is the, the, the number of ships that Chris talked about going down to 280, actually is supposed to happen around fiscal year or calendar year 2027. And that's exactly when the commanders and the the COCOMs said that China would be ready to go after Taiwan. So you've got unbelievable irony that the very same year that the Navy will be at its low end will be the year that everybody seems to be predicting China might be ready to to take action against uh, the island. And, and the irony is just unbelievable.
0: Uh, irony is so ironic sometimes, uh, Dov. Uh, and, and that's one of the elements that's in my piece that's coming out, uh, the two pieces uh, that are uh, coming out uh, today on our website. Um, Michael, uh, let me go to you uh, very quickly on the Navy side of things, right? I mean, is that going to be the easiest call that uh, a lot of these decisions will be overturned? And then I want to get in transit and I want to transition to the conversation on Russia-Ukraine, where law lawmakers are uh,
1: on um, increasing sanctions on
0: Russia? Take it away.
1: Yeah, Look, I think we're still at the beginning of this process. So I I do think that there's going to be a a lot of agreement on the Navy. Uh, And so I think think it will be the easiest overturn. But uh, there's going to be a lot of other things that are going to be overturned. And I think people see that there is a need for a a, a sizable standing army and the equipment that goes along with it and that the threat of ground war still exists. So I think we're going to see a lot of additions and a lot of changes across all the services, it's not just the Navy. Uh, and
0: uh, talk to us then about the sanctions regime as we transition to talk about Russia, Ukraine.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, there's only two countries that the United States does not have normal uh, trade relations with, and that's um, North Korea and Cuba. Uh, and several weeks ago, the House voted overwhelmingly to end normal trade relations status uh, with Russia. However, uh, it has been stalled in the Senate uh, for weeks, and first it was being held up by Senator Rand Paul, and earlier this week a deal was cut with Rand Paul, uh, which, would, uh, which would mean that they would have to amend it and send it back to the House, which was stalled even longer. But now, now Senator Cornyn, as of yesterday, is holding up this because he wants an amendment uh, to allow for a Lend-Lease program, uh, similar to what we had in World War II, uh, for the Ukrainians. So, again, if that is agreed to, uh, they still have to find time to vote on this, send it back to the House and have them vote on it. So this is still going to take time until it finally happens. Uh,
0: which is uh, which is more than a little disappointing from from my perspective. Dove, I want to take you uh, to uh, President uh, Biden's comments in Warsaw. It was a very, very powerful uh, address. It was overshadowed by the nine words he said, for God's sakes, uh, this man can't remain uh, in power, and I think that acknowledges a reality. The White House went bananas. We spent days saying the President didn't really mean to say that. Our policy is not to overthrow a government. He didn't say the United States was overthrowing the government. And, oh, by the way, Vladimir Putin already thinks we're trying to overthrow his government. Uh, I, I viewed it as moral clarity from a moral man who's sense of right and wrong. Uh, it was a little bit of a Reagan moment, right? I mean I remember when he called the Soviet Union the evil Empire, uh, there was such a kerfuffle over it, but at the end of the day, you won over the hearts of almost every Soviet citizen, including my relatives uh, at at the time. What did you make of the speech? How important is it to have that moral clarity if you're trying to bring uh, democracies together to stand up to authoritarians?
2: Well, the, the speech was great, and uh, it it certainly uh, was an echo of what President Reagan said. There was, there's a huge difference, though. When President Reagan was making that speech, at the same time, he was working with everybody from uh, uh, the Pope to uh, people like Lech uh, Lech, uh, Valenza in in Poland, uh, building up the defense budget in a serious way that hadn't been seen for some years, doing working with Radio for Europe, Radio uh, uh, Liberty, uh, doing all sorts of things to pressure the Soviet Union. That's not what's going on now. What we're seeing now is they still haven't figured out a way to get S-300s to the, the Ukrainians, and I don't understand why we can't get patriots to them. Um, if we believe that they're going to fight on for a month or two months, uh, I guarantee you we could uh, train them up to using them. Uh, so part of the problem is, and of course Zelensky keeps begging for more stuff. Part of the problem is If you talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk, you lose credibility. Right now, he's got it. He still has it. But it could wear out if we do not move more quickly to help these Ukrainians. And we see that they're, as you mentioned early in the program, they're counterattacking. This is the time to pour as much as we can into them and not simply talk about it. Uh, But yeah, his instincts are correct. But his ability to deliver on them is still questionable.
0: Uh, and, and that was an extraordinary multi-interdisciplinary uh, uh, time that was actually more reminiscent of the Eisenhower administration bringing all of these tools to bear, uh, to, to pressure uh, uh, Moscow. Let me, let me just ask you very briefly before I go to Patrick and then, and then to Chris. Um, if Ukraine is behind the attack on Bel- the fuel depot in Belgorod, um, that potentially could trigger a very powerful Russian response, right? I mean, the Russians have said as long as Russia ter- Russian territory is not attacked, we will not go nuclear, effectively, um, you know, and, and so there's there was a sense either this is a fake attack uh, on the part of the Russians to be able to claim causes belli to use WMD, or does this trigger it? Right? I mean, is this a problematic thing? M- my view is don't start a war if you don't want to get you know don't start a barroom fight if you don't want to get punched in the face. Russia well, started a barroom fight. He thought he could take the five foot three guy on. And beat him, and it turns out the five foot three guy has is kicking the crap out of him. Right? Um, that doesn't mean the big guy doesn't still have a gun. Anyway, well, you see my he, analogy.
2: He certainly he certainly has a gun that does Putin. The question is, um, there's a bigger guy behind the little guy. So the little guy knows how to fight with judo or krav maga or one of these uh, ways of fighting. Behind them is NATO and the United States, and Putin does not know. How we would respond if he did uh, unload some kind of nuclear weapon, which potentially could float. You know, the the fallout's going to go all over West Eastern Europe and maybe even to Western Europe. Right. So on the nuclear side, uh, I still remain skeptical. My worry is the chemical side, because Putin's experience is he used ke- he, he at least encouraged chemical weapons or tolerated them by Assad in Syria. And we did nothing. And that, I think, is the real question mark here, whether the Russians did this themselves, like a kind of burning of the Reichstag, or whether the, European, the Ukrainians actually did it. Um, I'm very, very worried that this becomes an excuse for using chemical warfare. We've threatened a response, but we did have a red line when Mr. Biden was vice president. And we did nothing. And I really worry that Putin might think we're going to do nothing again. And that could be a mistake, but it'll be coming late in the day.
0: Uh, Krav Maga, uh, ten points uh, to Dove uh, for for the for the reference. And where where are we on what we're hearing publicly from the Chinese? How they're behaving? Uh, because I think everybody in Beijing is pretty stunned by this and likely uh, getting madder at Vladimir Putin by the day. One would imagine.
3: Well, I think uh, Premier Li Keqiang, um, having just spoken virtually with the European Union. Uh, in discussions that the Chinese had hoped to focus on the usual topic of trade um, summed it up well when he said China is going to go, quote, its own way, unquote. Um, And I think that's exactly what China is doing rather consistently. So Europeans tried to demonstrate that uh, providing material aid for Putin was going to jeopardize relations on trade and investment um, between China and Europe. Um, But um, that didn't stop the Chinese from condemning sanctions. That's exactly what um, Foreign Minister Wang Yi did when uh, his junior partner, Sergei Lavrov, uh, came to Wang Shen, uh, you know, 250 miles west of Shanghai this week, to amplify their no-limits partnership. Uh, Chinese said, we're going to take this relationship to new heights, uh, talking about the Russia-China relationship. And you're thinking, there are bombs dropping on Ukrainian cities, and you're taking this relationship to new heights? Um, and, they, and then they focus on condemning sanctions. That's what they are united in. Um, And meanwhile, the Chinese have now launched a a blatant uh, information campaign. Their main state news agency, Shenhua, is running a multi-part series all about how this war is America's fault. Um, And yet um, you had foreign ministers uh, with China gathering to talk about Afghanistan and they agreed on eight points that are critical to the future of Afghanistan. And what's point number one? Respect for the independent sovereignty and territorial integrity of Afghanistan. We were talking about irony on this program. Well, <laughs> there is irony here. I, I think um, GCHQ chief Jeremy Fleming, that's the NSA of Britain, um, you know, gave a major speech in Canberra this week, um, and he rightly pointed not just about uh, Putin's misjudgment, but talked about China's clear choice. It has costs. He understands that Russia's strategic choice to align with China confers very clear benefits. They can get potentially weapons from China, and maybe they're getting some, who knows. Certainly technology have an energy market for their uh, energy, um, means of circumventing sanctions with the UN Security Council. But for Xi, for Xi Jinping and China, the calculus is a lot harder to read because they're damaging China's reputation by supporting a country that's out to destroy the fundamental rules of the road that China wants to rewrite to be more favorable to itself. So Russia is just destroying those rules. So the costs of the choice that China is making, I think, are clear to China. And your point, Vago, that yes, they are walking on eggshells probably privately about this. Um, but publicly, no, they're, they're being very bold and saying we're going our own way. But the problem is the Europeans pointed out to Li Keqiang and others today, they're not shortening the war as a result of that. They're prolonging the war. And the more they prolong the war, the more they're going to prolong Um, fear of of greater uh, bipolarity, arms racing, uh, and and conflict.
0: Uh, Do you, uh, just uh, really uh, uh, quickly, because I want to bring uh, Chris into this from a messaging uh, standpoint, the repercussions of these sanctions are going to damage the global economy. Um, we are seeing that in energy, this is gonna be a protected issue. EU has already rejected the, Russia's extortionist demand of, well, you have to pay me in rubles. Europeans are saying, hey, we negotiated these deals in, in euros, we're paying you in euros that happen to be frozen. So this contagion is gonna stre- uh, sp- uh, uh, spread to China. And there is a new hardness uh, in the United States about, you know, if, if you let Russia get away with this, then it, it is about China and we have to get tougher on China to make sure that they don't miscalculate similarly over taiwan how is all of this going to damage a chinese economy that is already weak right and and suffering from a whole series of cracks and oh by the way they're going through covid lockdowns now which doesn't help their economy either how does the economic dimension actually exacerbate the problems that xi and the leadership have in beijing
3: well it does compound it just take the shanghai covid lockdown uh, it's scaring away businesses that's the that's the real cost of that covid lockdown because the more that the government says we're going to have a zero tolerance policy for covid and as a result we're going to do weekend and week long uh, lockdowns of cities just with a whim um, is is you know creates unpredictability that businesses can't deal with so they're thinking about leaving china um, that's on top of the problems that that china's facing because China does so much trade with the West, with the United States, they are um, bluffing to some degree. To what extent they're aligning with with Russia? Because they know that they cannot afford to let the economy drop out from the bottom if sanctions start to be imposed on on China. On the other hand, they're calling the West bluff. You know, will we really be willing to uh, sort of exact those sanctions when we're not even willing to cut off uh, all of the Russian energy um, that? that we could. Um, So China is very fearful about the economic repercussions, so is the region, and that's where the US has a big audience to play to. We have to be very smart about not just defense, but about our economic messaging for our sustainability, uh, for economic growth, that we can manage inflation, that we can uh, get through with an intelligent energy strategy for the future that takes us through the short-term problems as well. and. You know, it remains to be seen whether we can do all of that, but th- those are the tests that will be really uh, affecting America's influence in the region. If you go back to the Indo-Pacific strategy that the Biden administration put out uh, early in February, it seems like a year ago, um, it said you know, this is a strategy that's built on uh, uh, the balance of influence that we want to build in the Indo-Pacific, and a lot of that influence is going to come from the long game of economic power.
0: Um, Chris, uh, uh, let me bring you in on the messaging elements of this. Uh, you and I, in real time, were sort of going back and forth along with uh, other uh, friends. Uh, Michael, you, know, you, were, you were part of this a little bit as well um, when Biden was making his comments last, last weekend. Uh, your thoughts and whether the administration is doing a deep dis- disservice by, you know, I mean, we saw the same when, when the president made comments about defending Taiwan. The administration, you know, geared in and said, "No, no, no, the president didn't really mean that, right?" And then the president said it again, and then they said, "Oh no, the president doesn't really mean that." I mean, obviously, he's messaging to China, and that's a message that the Chinese might actually be absorbing. Patrick, you've discussed that. Um, we, you know, we saw in this case, well, no, the pre-, you know, that was an ad lib remark. He didn't really mean it. And then, you know, a couple of days later, the president came out and said, oh, "No, no, I completely stand by what I said, and I, I really mean it." I mean, are they getting the
4: messaging really? badly wrong on this ultimately i don't know that they're getting the messaging badly wrong vago I, I think the execution could use a uh, a, a touch of tightening up um you, you know i mean the president any president is the message right i mean and so whatever that president says at the podium or um on tv or to a newspaper is the message and really the hey we want to fix it for our boss only works if you know he says 12 and the answer was really 13 or uh, you know in today's world. But I mean, walking back what the president says, uh, it, in my opinion, it just does more harm than good. Now, I mean, the, the opposition research on on Joe Biden is is that he's an old man that uh, is confused and he stumbles and bumbles and that there are uh, smarter people around him that are actually making the decisions. Now, we know that to not be the case, but the more that they, feel the need to correct him, the more that they feel the need to say, hey, what the president meant to say, and then he disagrees with that, the more it kind of feeds into that narrative um, and makes it less credible at home and less credible abroad.
0: Agreed. Uh, Anybody want uh, to weigh in on that? Uh, Michael, Dove, uh, Patrick, before we sort of uh, quickly wrap it up uh, with with Dove and Michael uh, on uh, the Iran talks, as well as uh, Israel's uh, very interesting meeting uh, over, over the weekend.
1: I, I think that there's a lot of frustration on the Hill that the messaging is a little muddled or that we're sh- sh- showing our hand too much by talking about what the things we're not gonna do uh, versus the things we're gonna do. And I think, I don't know if you saw Congressman Mike Gallagher wrote a very, really great piece in the Wall Street Journal you know, criticizing uh, what's called integrated deterrence, which is um, you know part of the new national defense strategy. And, you know, he, he says, you know, in, in his piece uh, that, you know, the administration delayed lethal assistance uh, for months and repeatedly signaled that military force was off the table for fear of provoking Putin, you know, because this new integrated deterrence relies a lot on diplomacy. And he actually says that he thinks it's possible that Xi senses an opportunity here and will decide to expedite his time, timeline uh, for Taiwan, especially since Biden can always consistently signals the desire to avoid direct military confrontation with a nuclear armed adversary. And that seems to be the signal we're sending. If you've got nuclear weapons or if you're not, or if a country's not part of NATO, we're not going to defend them. I think we've got to create more of a sense of, of ambiguity. I think um, Gallagher's points are very, very strong and well taken here.
0: Um, I, I understand the point you made. Deterrence did fail. And I think everybody agrees uh, with that. On the other hand, I think the president and the administration has said, we knew sanctions weren't going to stop him the whole question was talking you know using diplomacy to try to convince him you don't want to do this because you're going to get badly uh, punished but again i mean that's a challenge for uh, autocrats uh, right they they often uh, disregard that but i agree by taking military uh, capabilities off the table it's more problematic although there were also those who would argue that ukraine falls into a, a different category even though i think the budapest memorandum does give us you know we should have put troops into that country, not pulled it out. And I think you could probably draw a very strong parallel. The minute we took forces out is when Putin decided he's going to go in because there were, uh, you know, there, there, nobody else was in there. Uh, Dov, let's uh, shift a quick update on uh, Patrick. Did you have anything you wanted to add before we, we move on, uh, especially since we've invoked the word Taiwan a couple of times? Well, let
3: me, let me just say a couple of things in defense of the Biden administration since I've criticized them on their budget today. One of them is that the president has led the uh, transatlantic response to the aggression against Ukraine um, by Russia, and I think a lot of people would have predicted uh, before then that no, this administration was pivoting to Indo-Pacific and was going to neglect uh, Indo-Pacific or European security and NATO, uh, and he didn't do that. So he's trying to balance. The administration that he's leading is trying to balance um uh, our atlantic and pacific and ocean uh, indian ocean uh, interests and concerns and i think he's doing a, a relatively good job of that overall but yeah deterrence is really hard right now when you've got determined uh, aggressors and revisionist states out there that are willing to do everything from what dub was talking about possibly use chemical weapons to what michael's talking about in terms of um you know uh, testing integrated deterrence as a concept in theory i i think on Integrated deterrence, though, I think it's it's more than one thing. It's, it's many things. Uh, and one place where I think the administration is getting it right on integrated deterrence is um, doubling down on the technology that needs to be integrated in cyberspace, outer space, long range precision fires, information warfare um, to deter future Um, uh, hypersonic missile threats that are growing, for instance, with the missile racing, that could be critical for the future defense of Taiwan, as well as for Japan or South Korea or Australia or others uh, in the Indo-Pacific. So we have to think beyond the current moment. Yes, the Taiwan contingency is going to continue to be a dominant and growing intensifying threat that we all have to think about. And and Mike Gallagher and others have have been consistent about the need to, to focus on that. He's not wrong. Um, but we do have other longer-term threats to worry about here too. When you're thinking about China projecting power across the Indo-Pacific,
2: I'd like to jump in as well on this because Patrick's point about having multiple places to deter the thing about space or cyber, uh, however good they are, it's not clear to me that they're deterrents per se. For the simple reason that people don't know what's out there, uh, right. and when you're talking about autocrats, uh, and now we're seeing that. Uh, Mr. Putin may have believed his generals the way uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Saddam Hussein believed that his when they told him he had a nuclear uh, program. Uh, he's not going to perceive cyber or space until it actually happens. You have to have stuff that have, that's visible. And so given that uh, we we keep assuming that somehow we're going to deter one place, uh, one threat while we face another, say, deter the Russians while we face the Chinese or vice versa. Uh, It's not clear to me that with budgets like this one, uh, we're going to be able to do that. So in a sense, we've come full circle in this conversation.
3: Yeah, And, Uh, uh, you know, I agree with everything you said. I'm referring more to the potential of building a new system to hit a hypersonic missile threat that we don't have now. Uh, And once we once we feel that that will be a new deterrent
2: that will be a deterrent against hypersonics the but a lot of people are debating whether hypersonics in and of themselves are that much of a jump over what goes on now and it would only be one form of a deterrent i mean the fundamental problem is there and i don't think you disagree with me patrick you can't deter if you don't have stuff out there
3: absolutely no we're heated agreement i'm just talking about one vulnerability that should be clear that we have to start to deal with as well and
0: we're we're taking too long by the
2: way and this budget takes too long
0: um, the good news on this budget is, at least on the hypersonic systems and the defense systems, there is a sense of urgency in order to be able to field that. And of course, we should also uh, give the administration a little bit of due. It is a vast classified budget, uh, the largest classified budget we've ever seen, I believe. Um, and and so we, you know, and we all know there's quite a bit in that uh, that is very significant in capability. We don't want to message any of it because every time we've done that, actually, the Chinese have pretty quickly. Uh, copied our uh, capabilities. I would just say one point. I think the administration deserves a terrific amount of credit, and we are beginning to integrate these arms of national power in a way that we have not done in decades. We're beginning to integrate the economic arms of warfare. We are improving our military capability, albeit not uh, quickly enough. And I appreciate the political challenges the president has from the left of his party, who are outraged at that uh, more money is going to defense. Um, uh, and, and just as Harry Truman did, it, it takes a little bit of time to build these sinews and mechanisms that you need, right? Voice of America is uh, broadcasting again in Russia, uh, Russian, uh, if I'm not incorrect, uh, joining the BBC, having restarted the Russian language service in shortwave broadcasting. Um, okay, very quickly, we've got a very short amount of time, uh, two questions, uh, Dov, and each one of you get about a you know, minute and a half uh, or two minutes, and then, uh, Michael, you're going to r- wrap us up, uh, Dove. Uh, Iran uh, talks uh, continue as Israel met with US and Arab uh, diplomats. Um, I should add that there's really mounting and palpable frustration uh, with Israel uh, that uh, Jerusalem is not doing more to help Ukraine, Uh, for example, with loitering munitions. uh, Cynically speaking, Israel was willing to help Azeris kill Armenians, but won't help Ukrainians kill Russians because obviously there are a lot of other uh, Israeli interests uh, at stake there. Uh, whether from the Iran nuclear talks and, and anything else. Walk us to, through uh, these issues uh, really quick. And Michael, want to get your sense where we stand on uh, legislation uh, in Congress on Iran, and then we can end it there. Go ahead, Dove.
2: Well, uh, every week we talk about it's going to be Tuesday next week that this deal will come through. But it's uh, for those of you of a certain age, you remember Mr. Wimpy on Popeye would would ask for a hamburger today and pay you on Tuesday. It's kind of the same thing. This thing keeps getting pushed out and out and out. Uh, and the reason, frankly, is that there's a lot of unhappiness in the region and in on Capitol Hill with this notion that uh, we're going to take the uh, Revolutionary Guard off the terrorist list. Now, we've already taken the Houthis off the terrorist list, and that's infuriated the Saudis and the Emiratis, who have been targets of Houthi missiles backed up by the Iranians. Now you've got this thing that apparently uh, Rob Malley was one of the people behind it. Uh, he testified on the Hill and apparently didn't ta- satisfy them terribly well. So this thing is, is, is really caught up in knots right now. And the meeting in the Negev, south of Israel, uh, on Monday uh, with, uh, you know, the, the Mar- with the uh, Bahrainis, the Moroccans, the Emiratis, and Tony Blinken, um, presumably they gave Mr. Blinken a pretty hard time as to why they're pushing ahead with this, uh, uh, with this deal, which in any event is uh, not going to make things easier for any of them in the region, uh, whether or not the, the, there is a nuclear capability. If you take the, the uh, Revolutionary uh, Guard off the list, the terrorist list, you're basically giving them a green light to make even more trouble than they're making. And of course, if you release funds to the Iranians, you're now giving the Revolutionary Guard money to make that trouble. Uh, at the same time, uh, not only did they have a meeting, but uh, just yesterday, the Israelis and the Emiratis signed a free trade treaty. Can you imagine that? A free trade treaty between a Gulf country and Israel? Things are changing there and they're changing to a large degree, because there is a perception that we are so focused on this nuclear deal that we're losing sight of just about everything else that's going on in the region. One other thing that's going on in the region that's really important is there's more and more talk of Syria returning to the Arab League. My understanding is that, you know, given that the Emiratis have been talking to the Syrians and talking to the Israelis, the Israelis told the Emiratis, go right ahead and talk. That's a signal that Israel is quite comfortable with Mr. Assad staying in power. And that, again, is something that flies in the face of administration policy and not just the policy of this administration.
0: Uh, I should point out, though, that at the start of the uh, civil war, Israel was for getting rid of Assad until it was for keeping Assad. Uh, does it? Um, uh, and, By the way, and it does...
2: very long. It was for getting rid of Assad for a very short period, and then they concluded that He's going to stick around so we're not going to push to get rid of him
0: um and, and uh, very quickly does uh israel's decision not to help ukraine with the very kind of weapons that israel specializes in going to potentially backfire against israel or not
2: it's hard to say because on the one hand uh the everybody understands that the israelis have to have a reasonable relationship with russia so that uh on the golan heights so that they can keep going after uh transfers to hezbollah uh if russia turns out were to be uh in any way uh an adversary to israel that would be a huge problem for them uh, i think there's an understanding in uh, even in the administration that that's the case uh in any event uh, the turkish drones seem to be doing pretty well on their own in fact uh, there's an argument that their drones did better against uh the uh, armenians than than the israeli drones so and they're a lot cheaper Uh, And so I don't think there'll be a major backlash. Yeah, there's a gnashing of the teeth in Kiev, as there should be. And Zelensky was right to beat up on them. But at the end of the day, uh, I don't think it's
0: going to be that big a deal. Uh, Michael, you get 30 seconds. uh, Unfortunately, uh, talk to us about where lawmakers are on uh, a a, uh, Iran measure.
1: Sure. So for weeks, Democrats have been laying into the administration uh, about the messaging on, on the Iran deal and also for keeping them out of the loop and not providing them with information and briefings. Uh, you know, frankly, you know, several Democratic lawmakers raised concern about being forced to answer for the deal once it's cut. And they complain that the administration hasn't been selling a potential Iran deal, not only to Capitol Hill, but also to the public. So the administration has responded to that. There have been multiple briefings on, on the Hill um, and, you know, they're, they may not be satisfied with the answers they're getting, but at least they are, there is more communication with the Hill. Uh, Robert Malley, who i alluded to a little while ago, who is the U.S. representative uh, or special representative for Iran, uh, actually did say, you know, a deal is not around the corner and it's not inevitable. Uh, but what is, is if there is a deal, uh, there will be a vote on a joint resolution of disapproval. Uh, so in every passing day, we get closer to the election and this becomes a, a tougher, tougher politically for a lot of Democrats. Uh, so I think the administration's really got to be concerned about a joint resolution disapproval and having a veto-proof majority to be able to sustain any deal that they cut.
0: Uh, thanks very much, uh, everybody. Chris, did you have a, a last thought uh, before we part? I don't think I can stick the landing with that, Vago. So go ahead and pass. pass <laughs> okay. uh, the, yeah, All right.
4: There. Well,
0: I, I should point out, Chris, Chris was uh, observing because we go back and forth uh, in the course of, uh, of taping this. And he said, we have a mineshaft gap. So that's a nice reminder for everybody to check out. Uh, Dr. Strangelove over over the weekend. Um, everybody, thanks very, very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, look forward uh, to having you guys back on again next week. In the meantime, have a great week and a great weekend. Thanks so much. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building
3: creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine
0: decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that.